I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Malin Hay. I'm joined this week by my colleague, Daniel Cohen, who's written a piece in the latest issue of the LRB about the streaming giant Spotify. Since its founding in Sweden in 2006, Spotify has transformed the way that we listen to music, and it's now branched out into other media. 9.6% of you will listen to this very podcast on Spotify. So thanks so much for joining me, Dan. Thanks, Malam. I wonder if we could just start by talking a little bit about the history of Spotify, um, because I'm not sure that all the listeners will be aware of it. So if you could just take us through kind of where it came from and and where it's come to now. Sure. So as you said, Spotify was founded in 2006 in Sweden by two men, Daniel Ek and Martin Lawrenson. Daniel Ek was very young at the time. He was 23. Um, he knew Lawrenson because he had, Ek had sold the first company he founded, an advertising company, to Lawrenson's company. I didn't have any kind of background in music. I mean, I haven't actually read anything anywhere that suggests that Daniel Ek cares very much about music mm-hmm. for what that's worth. But, you know, they basically spotted a gap in the market. There's a Netflix dramatized series about the kind of founding of Spotify called The Playlist, um, which isn't terribly dramatic, but tries to kind of dramatize this as much as they can. And this was a moment Napster had launched in 1999, shut down with not too many years later. Um, there were other kind of file sharing services that followed LimeWire, Kazaar, um, and, you know, some of these things were either found in Sweden or at least were very popular in Sweden. And the pitch was, you know, here is something that would be easier to use, kind of offer quick access to music than the best legal alternatives that existed at that point, um, as opposed to the most high profile one at that point was the iTunes store. Um, but that required people to pay per song and to kind of download music. And it was doing relatively well, but it alone clearly wasn't going to defeat piracy. And it wasn't anything like as smooth and easy to use as Spotify was when it launched a few years later. So the company was founded in 2006. It goes through a kind of beta period and then launched in Sweden properly late in 2008 um, in the UK early 2009, a little bit after that in the US. Um, and you know, in the piece, I sort of say there's a kind of key turning point or development of Spotify that follows a few years later in the early 2010s where there's this move towards music recommendation. Kind of up until that point, the focus was just having as much music as you can you know, Eck talks about wanting Spotify to be the biggest record store. So have as much music as you can, make it quickly, smoothly, easily available. Um, it's it's very much about kind of being this comprehensive thing. Um, but there's a shift at that point, you know, I think mostly because by the early 2010s, these big tech companies have caught up. Apple has launched Apple Music, Amazon has Amazon Music, and whether or not these things have, you know, are quite as comprehensive as each other, the point is the average listener will be able to find whatever they want on any of those things. And at that point, there's much more of a push towards really the experience of Spotify as a lot of people will know today, which is the move towards kind of Spotify's own playlists, which are, you know, some of them are curated by Spotify's own employees. Some of them are more algorithmic and Discover Weekly is the kind of flagship example of that. Um, But also, you know, with this autoplay function of music coming on automatically after you come to the end of a song or album or playlist, um, you know, this kind of more proactive recommending. And that kind of has become the Spotify experience. And indeed, Spotify's rivals have kind of copied that as well. And, you know, at a certain point after that, there is this move more actively into podcasting. Spotify was already hosting podcasts, but in the late 2010s, there was clearly a conscious decision on the part of the company that um, really, I think that it was a way to spend less money on royalties because by buying these different production studios and investing in their own content, you, you put money into those purchases, you put money into developing things, but you don't have to pay royalties in the same way. And, you know, throughout Spotify's history, by far the biggest chunk of their spending has been on 
paying royalties to artists and labels. And, um, you know, we'll get onto this in different ways later, I think, but it's clear that a big part of Spotify's strategy throughout is simply to find ways to, you know, to pay less. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, from the way that you've described it, um, its origins, Spotify's origins are almost just a kind of right place, right time thing. I mean, it sounds as if Sweden itself was quite a kind of rich ground for exploring some of this technology around essentially pirated music. And actually, one of the details I really liked in your piece is that you mentioned that at the beginning of Spotify, a vast amount of the actual library of songs that were on there were just pirated songs that people who worked at Spotify had uploaded. But do you think that it's fair to say that Spotify basically ended music piracy as a proper concern? I mean, I think some people have attributed this to Spotify specifically or to streaming specifically. Um, I don't know what you think about that. Is music piracy still a thing? It's definitely not the thing that it was. I mean, I was, must have been 11 or so when Napster launched. I remember using Napster for the first time, I think, when I was 12. And Napster, just to clarify, was a site specifically for pirated music. I mean, Napster was a peer-to-peer service rather than a site. I mean, none of these things would ever admit to their purpose being for illegal file sharing. You know, they would simply present themselves as facilitating file sharing. But yes, I mean, Napster was the kind of the breakthrough platform for that. And, you know, there's a sense in which the music industry didn't quite recover from that. Um, But yes, I mean, a lot of my formative musical experiences, music that I discovered was things that I downloaded for the first time illegally, perhaps after that, you know, often after that, I'd then go out and buy the CD. But that was growing up in the 2000s. That was, you know, at, at a certain point, I think the main way in which certainly, you know, a lot of the people I knew first encountered music. And that's simply n- not a thing anymore. You know, there are all sorts of ways you can download music illegally. Also, there's all sorts of music that some people might want to listen to that isn't on Spotify, isn't in copyright, is hard to get hold of, certain things that on actual music releases, there might be bootlegs, concert recordings, things like that. And that I think there will always be a market for that. A lot of that stuff also these days is put on YouTube or you know SoundCloud or that kind of platform. And so whether we attribute it to Spotify specifically or streaming more broadly, um, you know, clearly piracy has ceased to be the kind of problem that it was. And you know, at one point it seemed like a kind of existential threat to the music industry if we think of the music industry as this formalized thing with record labels and particularly big record labels um the, the swedish element in this is i think very interesting um you know i mentioned in the piece that and i mentioned earlier that there are specific um swedish file sharing services the pirate bay um which was I think very big in the early to mid 2000s is swedish there was even a pirate party in sweden and that was, the, as far as I know, the first of the pirate parties, and there were kind of, you know, that set a trend for pirate parties all you over mean, Europe um, and elsewhere. Political parties. Political parties. Sorry, yeah. I should spell out. Um, you know, dedicated particularly to this sort of commitment to free transmission of information and being against um, copyright in its modern form. And there are other things going on in Sweden as well. It's a place where, perhaps not so surprising, the Swedish state had invested in computer literacy classes, and there were schemes that made it easier to buy a home computer and the country invested in infrastructure to create at a relatively early stage a high-speed broadband network so it was more people had the technology and the technological literacy and you know the all-round means to download and share music than in most other parts of the world at that time and I think that feeds into all of it. You were a Napster user in the early 2000s you then say in the piece that when Spotify became available in the UK in 2009, mm-hmm. you became a member of Spotify. That's right. Um, and is it the case that you had to be invited to Spotify at the time? Unfortunately, I don't actually remember. How old were you? I was, it was 2021. 20, I, I have a very clear memory of being in the house that I lived in, in my second year university, and being on Spotify then, I think it's possible at that stage that you had to be invited by someone. So, you know, it's, I do seem to remember that. Um, so a friend would have told me about it, they'd have had an invite, I in turn would have invited someone else. And at that point I was buying CDs. I was also um, probably still downloading illegally, maybe it would have been torrenting at that point, um, often downloading illegally and then buying CDs if I particularly like things and also buying MP3s some of the time. But yeah, it was this amazing thing. Um, I'm not sure I really convey in the piece that, you know, on a certain level, this is a kind of miraculous technology. And there were more emissions then than there are now. You know, the Beatles were only on Spotify, I think, from maybe the early 2010s. And sometime around then, Bob Dylan took his music off. And, you know, there are other famous examples. But 
The point is those people were exceptional, that the overall experience was if you wanted to find something, you could find it on there. And even the difference between that and my using Napster again to get back to that, eight or nine years earlier, just was so much easier. And it's also, yeah, it's the sense that you could read a reference to some artists, whether they're contemporary bound or someone obscure from 20 or 30 years earlier. And, you know, there didn't even have to be any kind of gap between reading about them and hearing the artist. You could just mm. play it. Whereas you hear about people, you know, from a generation before me, might go years without hearing one of these bands. You might have to imagine them. And even in the 2000s, I had a bit of an experience of that. You know, there was still, there were things that were hard to get hold of. And with Spotify, it really did feel totally different. So now you have remained on Spotify this whole time. Mm-hmm. So how much has it changed? I mean, you've touched on the fact that it began as essentially a library of music. It's now a recommendations-based kind of algorithmic service. But does the actual interface feel different or has it kind of stayed classic? It does seem to have had a lot of loyalty attached to it. I mean, I think a lot of people have stayed on Spotify for a very long time. Why do you think that is? Go to your first thing. I think it's kind of amazing how similar as an interface Spotify is to when I started using it. 14 odd years ago, that is actually about to change. And I think we'll go on to that. But the fundamentals of of the aesthetic and experience really do seem very similar to me. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't make that much use of the recommendation side of things in the playlist, and you know, I'm someone who I did more of that in order to try to think about Spotify for this article, but generally that's not really how I engage with it, then actually your experience can be quite similar. In terms of the loyalty, I mean, I think it's convenience as much as anything else, isn't it? You know, most people's experience of it is that it works fine. Um, I've spoken to very few people, you know, in the many conversations I've had just with people I know and, you know, people I meet about Spotify around this piece, very few people who talk about swapping it for something else. One of our colleagues, in fact, told me that she started using Apple Music just because she found almost what I might describe as the affect, I think, of Spotify as quite annoying. that the, the way it kind of talks to you, and particularly in Spotify Wrapped, she just got fed up of that and used Apple Music instead. But that's, in my experience, a relatively exceptional story. And, you know, if you have, if you've been using Spotify for years, then you might have various playlists that you've built up and the idea of swapping to something else and losing those or trying to carry those over. Um, I think it applies to so many kinds of apps. It's just using them for a certain amount of time inspires a kind of almost instinctive loyalty, mm. um, unless perhaps you step back and think about some of the questions involved, which for all kinds of reasons most people aren't going to do, mm. then you will continue using the thing because it does what it's meant to do as a user, I think, for most people you know, rather well. And as you point out in the piece, for those of us who pay subscriptions, the subscription price hasn't changed since a long time ago, right? Like, it's, it's, it's ne- the same It's price. never changed. In the UK, it's, it, you know, it launched at £9.99 and that's what it remains. And I, So yeah, it I, really has gone down in value a lot since then. But I suppose at the same time, it's gained so many more users that maybe it balances out. Well, I think maybe we'll talk in more detail about Spotify's financial difficulties, but this is a company that has never made a profit. And I think that this has to be a part of it. You know, there are people that say it simply doesn't charge enough. And I think that's the point. You know, the people that get a good deal out of Spotify are the users Either you're not paying anything for it because we haven't, I think, addressed the fact that more than half of the people that use Spotify actually aren't paying for it. They have free accounts um, and they're subsidized in theory by ads, although it's never clear really most of Spotify's revenue, the overwhelming majority, I think, comes from subscriptions rather than ads. And yes, either they're paying nothing or they're paying £10 a month or £9.99, a figure that's remained unchanged. But it's an arrangement that doesn't work very well for most artists, as I say in the piece. And, you know, it doesn't seem to work terribly well for Spotify because it doesn't make a profit and it's just announced that it's having to lay off 6% of its staff. So let's talk a little bit more about the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned in the piece that artists are being paid a very small cut per song that yes. gets streamed. So something like 0.1p per song. That, yeah, I mean, that that's... It could be more than that, but it could certainly be as little as that, particularly if you're on a major label, artists on major labels. Major labels tend to take a bigger cut in exchange, I suppose they would say, for you know doing more in terms of promotion and marketing and so on. If you're an independent label, you'd get a bigger cut. And of course, there are artists who put out their own music, but even so, we're talking a fraction of 1p. Meaning that you'd have to be played thousands of times to get even a pound's worth of revenue. So Spotify has been embroiled in various 
disputes about this. Mm-hmm. There's a campaign that you mentioned called Justice at Spotify, which is um, a kind of collective of independent artists who have got together and said, this is enough is enough. We need to be being paid more per stream and that also are comparing it to other streaming services. I think Apple Music is one mm-hmm. that pays a lot more per song or per stream. But Spotify's line on this is that, well, it's not our fault. We already take a very small cut of the profits and it's the labels who have jurisdiction over how much each individual artist gets. So their response to most of these queries is just, don't ask us. We don't know how much you're getting and it's none of our business. So do you think that the fact that artists are being paid almost nothing is, as the labels are claiming, Spotify's fault or as Spotify's claiming, the label's fault? I think there are a lot of things going on here. I mean, you know, it seems to me that the major label system isn't something that works for a lot of artists. And, you know, I say in the piece, two thirds of the music that's streamed these days is music that's on one of the big three record labels, which are Universal, Sony and Warner. Yes. So, I mean, there's stuff about relating to that. And as I said, independent labels tend to have what one might think of as a fairer division of royalties tends to go 50-50. And it is so much easier than it once was to, as an artist, release your own music or release your own music and then pay a distributor. And those are the kinds of arrangements that allow an artist to take a much bigger cut of the royalty, although without some of the benefits that might come from being on a major label in terms of the publicity you're able to get. So I think that there is something in that. Um, There's also, you know, there have been critiques of the way in which Spotify pays royalties, you know, that as I explained in the article, the sum you gave, that's one can kind of average out roughly how much an artist might make per stream. But Spotify is very, very keen on pointing out that it doesn't pay per stream. It sets aside a sum of money each month, which I think is meant to be something like, you know, 70% of its revenue, which is, you know, essentially a massive pot of money. And then if as an artist in a given month, 1% of the music streamed on Spotify is your music, then of that royalty pot should go to you, except it doesn't go straight to you because if you're on a label, a label will take some of that money. I think one thing that works probably both to Spotify and perhaps to the major labels uh, benefit is it's a very, very complicated opaque system. You know, I found it very difficult to get my head around in the course of writing this article and and it's it's kind of impossible to generalize because, you know, each artist will have their own arrangement. Um, different labels have their own arrangements. One thing I haven't mentioned is, you know, as an artist, it's like being a book author. You will only start getting royalties after you've paid off your advance. So there are all kinds of ways that, you know, essentially as an artist, it is difficult to get paid. But, you know, going back to the system I mentioned, there have been proposals, different ways you could divide up the royalties so that it doesn't kind of less of the money goes to the big artists, which is what seems in most people's eyes to be the problem now. Um, Kind of fairer ways of dividing that up and there's different kind of complicated suggestions for that. And also rather than, one suggestion is that rather than it being based on what everyone listens to, you could instead attach a certain amount of royalty payments to each listener and break down their listening. So whether that would make things fairer, I don't necessarily know. We've talked a little bit about the role of smaller artists Mm. in campaigning against Spotify's royalties system. But there have also been higher profile cases, such as Taylor Swift, who you talk about in the piece, who was somebody who took all of her music off Spotify for a bit, for a period of three years, I think Mm -hmm. it was. Um, And now, for actually different reasons, not related to royalties, both Joni Mitchell and Neil Young have also taken their libraries off Spotify. How altruistic do you think that move is by somebody like Taylor Swift? I mean, she would probably frame it as something that's intended to bring awareness to an issue as well as something that's personally going to... She's obviously explicitly doing it for for profit reasons, but I think she would also maybe argue that this is a, a kind of campaign, a kind of stand that she's taking against Spotify. Do you think that massive artists are owed anything by Spotify? given that they're probably making actually quite a lot of money Mm. off it, which is unusual because most people don't make that much money. Do you think that they're raising awareness of something that will ultimately trickle down to smaller artists? Or is it more cynical than that? Well, I think, I mean, one way of looking at the Taylor Swift thing is if it was a bet, I'm not sure it necessarily was. And if so, what she was, you know, was she betting on Spotify becoming less popular, successful? Probably not. Was she betting on being able to get more kind of preferential terms for returning? I'm not sure. But whatever it was, it was a bet that didn't really pay off you know i remember seeing figures somewhere that the number of people that left spotify because of taylor swift's music not being on there assuming one can actually quantify these things was in the hundreds you know it was a 
tiny, tiny number. And the period in question, I think, was 2014 to 2017, during which Taylor Swift didn't have her music on there. That's kind of, that is really the sort of moment when streaming properly becomes consolidated. It's sometime in the, I think, maybe late 2010s that streaming starts to account for more than half of all of the recorded music industry's revenue. And, you know, at that point, it's just clear that you can't beat it. You know, you can't beat a company like Spotify. You also had a thing earlier in the decade when Tidal, which was launched by Jay-Z, among others, and as a rival streaming service, and there was certain music that was on there exclusively in order to try to lure people over. And I think the trend for that has gone as well. There's just a sense that, you know, all these things, unless it's people like Neil Young and Jenny Mitchell specifically putting their music from Spotify as a protest about Spotify in particular. And in their case, Spotify's deal with the podcaster Joe Rogan. There's just an assumption that you just have to put all your music on these things. And, you know, for Taylor Swift, it's not clear what she got out of not being on there. And clearly she lost out on millions of pounds and royalties by not being on there. And I would assume that that played a big part in her deciding eventually to return. One of the things that Taylor Swift said when she left Spotify was that music shouldn't be free. It's an art form. Mm -hmm. People should pay for it. And I feel like this is something that some critics of Spotify have pointed out, is that in a way, paying $9.99 a month for music is extremely cheap. And it does maybe give listeners the mistaken impression that music is very cheap as a concept or as something to produce. So I don't know what you think about that. Is it fair to say that listeners have become more entitled because... Spotify is offering them something for such a small amount of money. One thing that's tricky about this is, you know, in the 2000s, as we discussed earlier, when piracy was much more widespread, people were, many people at least, were paying nothing for music and showed themselves willing to pay nothing for music, much to the irritation of record labels and obviously many artists. And one reason why, you know, I find it slightly hard to kind of harangue people for using Spotify is that, you know, Spotify users are kind of, they're doing what they were told to do. And we were told don't use piracy, use legal means of accessing and playing music. And that's what Spotify offers. Some people doing it legally for free, some people doing it legally by paying $9.99. And again, I think we have to distinguish between those free users and people who are paying that sum. I think if you're using it for free, then it probably does help foster the sense of music as being something you don't have to pay for. Although, of course, we have always had radio and most people's experience, you know, for a lot of the last few decades listening to music will have been primarily through radio, which they weren't paying for. But as with Spotify, radio is making the money through advertising. Um, but no, nonetheless, I think, yeah, it, it certainly can encourage that sense of music being something you don't have to pay for. Whether £10 a month is too little, again, I think that's that's sort of for Spotify on some level to figure out more than it is the the user's responsibility. If £10 a month means that putting aside Spotify's own kind of financial solvency, if £10 a month isn't enough to provide artists what they might think of as a fair deal, then it probably is too little. But you can't blame, you know, the user is only going to pay what the company is charging them. Although, well, And also the company will be choosing its price very carefully based on a, an assessment of what people will pay. People exactly. pay what they want to pay. Of course. I mean, just because you pay £10 a month to Spotify doesn't mean you can't, on top of that, pay to buy records or indeed CDs, or it doesn't mean that you can't pay to download music from Bandcamp or, you know, any number of other ways of spending money on music. That doesn't have to be the extent of what you spend on music. As for the Taylor Swift thing about, you know, music shouldn't be free, it's, um, as I say in the article, that's almost less almost less a kind of abstract philosophical thing than it, you know, simply as a, a kind of a labour issue, right? Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who make music for whom ideally that's just they would do and no matter what else they do no matter how else they make money making music is essentially one of their jobs you know if they are making music that people are paying money for that is a form of labor and it seems clear that it has become harder to make money off recorded music um, than it might have been 20 or 30 years ago putting aside the question of artists making money from live performances Um, and in that sense if you care about these things you know if you want people to be in circumstances where they can make music and also have the can devote the time to make music, then, you know, as a listener, you do have some kind of responsibility to pay for it. Do you think there's any sense in which Spotify might be good for small artists? I mean, I'm just thinking about 
the discovery aspect mm. of Spotify. I think I personally have found a lot of new music through Spotify and some of that is from small artists. So do you think, I mean, and I suppose that's how Spotify would present itself is, well, we're a platform that's bringing your music to a, such a wide audience. How much merit do you think there is in that claim? I mean, clearly people like Justice at Spotify are saying, actually, Spotify is very bad for small artists. But do you think that in a way it could be a good thing? I think there are ways in which it can work for small artists. Also, you know, there will be small artists, who, as I said earlier, who might not be on record level. They might release their own music in one way or another. So they are anyway getting a greater share of the royalties, although it's still going to be a very small amount per stream. If you're a relatively obscure artist who ends up on a big Spotify playlist, that is going to give you a huge amount of exposure. And, you know, what that exposure might lead to is an open question. How much money, even if you're getting played a million times on Spotify, that's not going to be enough money to, you know, necessarily quit your job over or buy a house with. But Spotify, these playlists give Spotify a huge amount of power. Um, putting aside even the, you know, the algorithmic aspect in terms of what you recommended, someone who gets on a playlist that has one or five million sort of followers, you know, that is that is a kind of breakthrough, much like, you know, getting played on MTV might once have been or something like that. And so, so of course, there are ways in which it is beneficial for small artists. And, you know, I've heard people I know or, you know, heard of people who are smaller artists or medium-sized artists who feel like they make a decent amount of Spotify. And again, that might be because they are recording their own music, they're releasing it themselves, you know, their overheads are relatively low. And that means that quite a high share of the revenue goes to them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it works out as a good arrangement, a good deal for smaller artists overall. Let's talk about the playlists a little mm. bit, because um, you, you gestured earlier towards the fact that there are lots of different ways of using Spotify. So you might actually be the kind of person who just uses it to listen to whole albums from start to finish or singles. Um, but I think for a lot of people right now, especially in the last maybe five or six years who use Spotify, a lot of their listening will be in the form of playlists. Now, mm -hmm. I actually didn't realise until we were talking about the piece before publication that the concept of a playlist, as we think of it today, actually has a lot to do with more recent technologies of streaming and, and kind of music libraries. So how has a playlist changed now since perhaps what it was on the radio in 1985? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the playlist in the way that Spotify or indeed other streaming services use the term, I think it's probably fair to, that that goes back to kind of the 2000s and things like iTunes and, you know, other equivalent things at the time where you had your library of music and you could drag things into a playlist. And I mean, I remember on iTunes, you would make a playlist and then if it was under 74 or 80 minutes, you could burn it as a CD. And I think if I think of the earlier playlists I might have made, they probably would have been much shorter. I wonder if that is perhaps a way in which playlists have changed that you know, a playlist would have been comparable a length to an album or two albums. Whereas now a playlist can be any number of things, you know, it, it can be um, some of Spotify's playlists are far, far longer than that. A playlist can be some of the playlists I have on Spotify, more things I made a long time ago, but I actually dragged albums into them as albums that I meant to listen to. You know, it's kind of a way of making a note to yourself of something you want to return to in whatever way. But the idea of a, of a public playlist, well, whether it's a playlist that a user can share or a playlist that a company like Spotify is producing and making public, that you know, is a much more recent thing that dates to the streaming era. And like I said, there was that shift about a decade ago in Spotify to recommending music. And one of the ways in which Spotify does that is, you know, with these these teams, you know, they have employees who um, put together playlists, could be around a mood, could be around a genre, could be around a decade. I mean, some of the mood and genre ones are quite comical often you know with sort of phrases like sad girls in and things like that yeah i had a list of mixes that spotify had maybe including anti-anxiety dogs mix crying mix funeral doom mix and goblin core mix um just to give some examples one thing i'd say about these mixes is if i think of playlists the kind of playlists that you know i might have been making or was aware of in the 2000s and obviously the, the actual ancestor of the playlist is the mixtape, right? Well, that's I mean, what I was going to say. And, and with the mixtape, I think there's, because things were finite, because, you know, you had 45-minute sides or, like I said, 74 minutes for a CD or whatever it is, things were limited. And typically you'd put a certain amount of care into which tracks would go in, which order. Whereas if you look at often quite a big Spotify playlist, kind of millions of followers, it's clear that 
maybe thought has gone into which tracks are on there, but the order can often look totally random. Yeah, you especially know? because probably most people listen to playlists on shuffle, right? Right, exactly. So it, there's no sense of a sort of like mix CD or a DJ set or something else, something that has to have a kind of narrative and you're thinking about the songs that go side by side. Mm. I don't get that from most Spotify playlists, but there's definitely a sense, um, this is something that Liz Pelly, who's written a lot of good stuff about Spotify, has pointed out that Spotify really tries to push playlists. If you search for an artist, let's say you search for Charlie XCX, the first thing that will come up will be This Is Charlie XCX, mm. which is Spotify's own playlist of generally the most famous songs by Charlie XCX or whoever it is, rather than any of her albums. And it's it's definitely a push towards the playlist as the kind of the main thing, you know, the song and the playlist as the main ways in which people consume and experience music. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, I suppose, you know, Spotify doesn't make albums, it makes playlists. So They want you to think that the playlist is a crucial element yeah. of your listening. That is what it is to listen to music now, essentially. Um, but also I think that you know, a lot of people will want This Is Charlie XCX because they'll want the hits. You know, it's they won't necessarily want the album tracks. And if you want an album, maybe you know a bit more, maybe, you know, you can seek it out. I mean, there's this distinction, which I didn't include in the piece, which is used in the music industry and the people that work on this kind of thing, which are lean forward listeners and lean back listeners. Lean forward listeners, they know what they want. They, you know, that it's the kind of people almost that Spotify was originally designed for. You have an artist in mind, you have an album in mind, you want to put it on. Lean back listeners, on the other hand, they are looking for recommendations. They kind of want to be taken somewhere. And, you know, the playlistification as well as the algorithmic recommendation is very much targeted more towards that kind of listener. In my experience, the playlists that Spotify makes are useful when you're in a group situation mm. and you don't want to be constantly going on your right. phone or going to the computer or wherever to try and like queue up songs. You just want something that's, yeah, like you say, a kind of very defined mood. So they have a lot of dinner party yep. um, playlists and things like that or a party playlist, things like that. And um, you can just put it on and forget about it and not and not be kind of going back and forth and being very active about it. But I wonder whether you think that is a kind of falsification of what it means to listen to music. I mean, do you feel that there's a hierarchy in your head about which is better, playlists or albums? I would think of myself as a, a lean forward listener, to use that not particularly appealing term. Um, and that means that I do tend to gravitate towards albums. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, I don't just listen to music on Spotify. I do still by records um i do still actually use my old ipod sometimes which has lots of albums on there um and yeah for, for me the album for the most part is still the main kind of unit or format of music through which i you know that i most kind of relate to i guess although i, I will say that you know in the kind of couple of years or few years that i've been using spotify more you know i've only had a premium account for the last three years and i've definitely used it more in that time and you know, when I'm out and about, that's what I'm listening to music on. I have noticed myself listening to albums less, which I think is, you know, that is a very common experience. So, you know, I think it has changed my own experience listening to music just in the way that it has for other people. But that's, that is how I choose to listen to music. I don't think, you know, if, if that's not how someone else wants to listen to music, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I, I suppose what I will say, going back to what I said about the sort of care that goes into Spotify mm. players. You know, I think a lot more care goes into an album. An artist, you know, has chosen which songs to go on, and then they've chosen the order in which they want to do it. There's a particular sound, a particular mood, and there's nothing like that kind of consideration in your typical Spotify playlist, for whatever that's worth. How does difficulty come into this as well? Because I, I feel like when you listen to an album, there are going to be tracks that are very easy listening and that you really instinctively like. And then there are also going to be tracks which you don't like as much or which you find more difficult to listen to. It takes more time to get into them. Um, and I think maybe playlists tend to distill the more easy tracks, especially Spotify's own algorithmic playlists, tend to take the more bouncy or maybe more exciting or more... Um, earwormy tracks from an album and put them all in one place. And you mentioned actually that sometimes artists have been surprised by which tracks of theirs get really popular on Spotify and that sometimes they feel that those are the tracks of theirs which are more generic or more more like all music or more like other music. Um, so I don't know what you think about that, like um, whether whether there's an inherent work that goes into listening to an album which is lacking when you listen to a playlist. I think... I think there might be something in that, but I think what well, you're getting at something more about the overall Spotify experience. I think difficulty and the idea that difficulty 
many different types of difficulty. Difficulty could be an important and necessary and valuable part of listening to music that seems to kind of inimical to what Spotify is about because, um, you know, we talked about the playlistification and as you were saying, so many of these playlists are based around moods. But there's a kind of, those moods tend to be quite comforting. You know, even if it is sort of these sad girl playlists or whatever, there's still, there's something soothing or kind of cathartic about it or the music is meant to be upbeat and it's meant to be music that puts a, a spring in your step. And I don't know, there seems fewer playlist around more complicated or kind of ambivalent emotions um and yeah i I, certainly um albums can be difficult in the sense that you know there might be tracks that get your attention less or indeed you know or indeed album might take work to listen to a few times to get into as a whole and some music is self-consciously and necessarily difficult and that you know clearly isn't the music that most people want to listen to most of the time but um it seems to me that you know Spotify doesn't really kind of make a space for that, and you know, connected to that, I suppose, is a sense in which it encourages a kind of constant listening. But you know, constant listening can only be at least a lot of the time background listening, and you know, there is music that just isn't going to work like that. Music that you know, if you put it on in the background, it's just going to annoy you or give you a headache or whatever else, mm. or distract you or whatever. The sense that music of different sorts is something that we might there might just be times that you focus on and that's all you do again that's not necessarily what spotify seems to be offering spotify also thinks of itself and markets itself as a social platform Mm. right so there's a function where you can follow your friends or follow artists and see in a little side panel if you're on your computer what it is that they're currently listening to although actually i think it's not particularly accurate is that right like sometimes you see that somebody's listening to something and they're not actually but anyway in principle you can see what other people are listening to and then there's also Spotify wrapped which you mentioned earlier which is a kind of end of year roundup where Spotify will give you a slideshow that says here are the different genres you listen to this year here were your top five artists and everybody likes to share those on social media so there's an element in which Spotify is, is making people into more public listeners mm. of music. Um, but but is that different from how people listen to music before Spotify? Because after all, music has always been something that creates tribal identities and things. Yeah, and that's that for me has always been one of the nicest parts about listening to music is sharing music with other people, you know, having music recommended to me and recommending it in turn. It's not, it, it might not have been public in the same way that it now is on Spotify, but it's still a social thing. But I mean, Spotify wrapped... First of all, there's incredible free marketing for Spotify. Yeah, the way yeah. that I mean, certainly there's a day or two for me every December where mm-hmm. it just feels like my Twitter feed is totally filled with people doing that. Another thing that I find funny about Spotify Wrapped is that the rest of the year it's quite different. First, aside from the fact that you're you actually can only have it for a brief period, which is slightly frustrating. And then yeah, it you can't go back to it later. You just, you just can't access a lot of this information. You you can see your most played artists for the month, but it's quite hard to find on Spotify. Mm-hmm. But you know when I relied more on iTunes I used to spend quite a lot of time looking at what have I been listening to how many times have I listened to this thing partly because I think it's quite interesting partly mm-hmm. because it would remind me that I listened to something and liked it and it should be so easy for Spotify to do something like that but that's weirdly kind of proprietorial and only almost presenting as if it's this act of generosity at the yeah. end of the year with Spotify rap that it's telling you in quite an annoying way as our colleague said what you've been yeah. listening to I think there are ways in which it's positive I think there are ways in which it as with lots of things relating to social media also feels a bit creepy. And it's, Mm -hmm. I guess, a reminder of, you know, how much Spotify probably knows about us. Mm -hmm. and um, Yeah, knows what you listen to at what time of day and things. Yeah, um, just as we know what music people who listen to the LRB podcast on Spotify listen to. Oh, yeah, the top artists that LRB podcast listeners listen to are Lana Del Rey, The Beatles, Taylor Swift, Bob Dylan and Boy Genius. So... Quite a range. Um, But I'm wondering whether, I mean, I'm wondering whether, basically what I'm wondering about this Spotify rap thing is whether it valorises recognition factor in artists too much. So if you're Spotify wrapped, you know, if your top five artists of the year are five artists that nobody else has heard of Mm. because they're really weird. I mean, my top artist every single year is this band who I honestly know three people that listen to them and but not in a like go, they're go really on. the roaches there's like 1970s yeah, folk yeah. band they're, they're like not they're not cool and niche they're just niche and 
weird. But I mean, you know, you look up the roadshow on Spotify. They're they're not they're, unpopular. Yeah, yeah. But I am in their like top zero point zero zero one percent of listeners. But but my point is just that like I, I wouldn't want to post that online because nobody would care. Like you know, the reason to post it, in my opinion, is either to say I am really a kind of eclectic and mm. amazing listener or oh, look how much I like this thing that everybody likes or you're kind of bonding with people. So I'm wondering whether that is contributing to the like kind of flattening of music into big artists. Uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I mean, I think the, another thing you get almost is kind of performative. Oh, look at how bad my taste is, you know, but listen oh, to yeah, Beyonce I definitely, or, yeah, I mean, or something I definitely like that. I definitely do that as well. And, 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 and I know people who... Um, who don't you know? Who the idea of sharing this is feels incredibly personal or private. Not not even that they're necessarily embarrassed of mm. their taste. It, it, it's but it's just it's not something they want to share. And yeah. I suppose also you know there are situations you know we listen to music uh, in happy times and sometimes in difficult times. And you know it's, there are certain artists who um, I remember someone telling me about her Spotify Wrapped that her most listened to artist last year was Mac Miller. And she sort of said, you know, she was going through, she'd be going through a bad time and that's why she right. was listening to him so much. And you might not want someone to know about that as well, mm-hmm. even if you were to deduce that much into it. Mm. Um, or at least that, as you point out in the piece, that like people listen to music for very different reasons and that maybe Spotify is is putting everything on the same level or assuming that, you know, for instance, because you've listened to an artist more times than you've listened to any other artist, that they're your favourite artist. But that actually... I don't think that's really true of me. I don't know if it's true of you. No, no. and I think one thing that's surprising about Spotify Wrapped is that sometimes the artists that are in my top five, I'm surprised to see them there because they haven't made that much of an impact on me because their album was fun. It was nice. And for that reason, I might be more likely to put it on yeah. when I'm getting with doing things or, you know, hanging out with friends. But it it's, it hasn't necessarily moved me or struck me in a way that certain other music that way was. But in Spotify's eyes, those are my favourite five artists yeah. for the year. And as you point out... Sometimes, if you really like something and you feel really moved by it, you don't want to listen to it too many times because Absolutely. it kind of might ruin it or it might, you know, you don't want to overdo it, basically. I suppose what we're really saying is that there's more complexity to it than maybe what Spotify is trying to present or that somehow it does reduce the complexity of people's listening patterns, mm. even as it has this massive amount of data that it can access. You know, is it meaningful that I listen to a certain artist in the morning and a certain artist at night? Possibly not. Yeah, exactly. It could be totally coincidental. You mentioned at the very beginning of the episode that Spotify um, has had a very consistent interface for its entire lifespan, essentially, but that that is now possibly going to change. So let's talk a little bit about the projected Spotify redesign, which has already been rolled out for some users who've updated their Spotify. Um, And as far as I can tell, has only garnered complaints and anger um so let's first maybe could you explain what it is that they've changed and secondly what the maybe ramifications are for spotify users yes i mean i haven't seen it myself firsthand but it seems to be you know sort of fundamental redesign of the of the feed and i think kind of giving users a version of the feed that it might be that is more in common with the sort of feed we're used to from social media i think in particular tiktok but also instagram um and i think maybe less of a kind of clear divide between, okay, here's the music, here, here are the podcasts, different kinds of media, and indeed more video, which was at one point, you know, at one point Spotify tried to move into a proper video streaming thing and it didn't work for different reasons about a decade ago. Um, but trying to make use of video, I suppose, videos of music and different kinds of things like that. And I, almost as if the feed itself, I think, is providing more of an experience, if that makes sense. Um, and... Yeah, as you say, people don't seem to like it very much so far. And certainly someone like myself, who generally wants to use Spotify as a music library, mm. I mean, if there's no way to switch these things off, I'm going to be very annoyed. Yeah. Um, I think what people are mostly complaining about is that it starts playing music as soon as you open it right, automatically pre- yes, without pre- you being able to turn it on. And can play sort of previews of songs and things yeah. like that. It sounds like a much more hectic and kind of... Yeah overwhelming experience um where do you think it comes from i mean is it just is it just the tendency of all apps to become more alike is it i mean or is it something specific to spotify's new desire to introduce you to things i mean you know until this point my understanding is that if anything it's you know other streaming at least within music streaming it's that other apps have become more like spotify and spotify has remained fairly fairly consistent Mm -hmm. um i think that tiktok it goes without saying, and you wrote a piece about TikTok and its relationship to, to books. But, you know, TikTok has had a huge effect in the last few years. You know, now TikTok, I think, is 
if we're talking about one thing I talk about in this piece is Spotify's effect on the length of songs and which songs become popular and so on. You know, Spotify clearly remains very influential in that sense, but I do think TikTok is a bigger deal now for those. Um, and, you know, I don't know that, I mean, last year, certainly Spotify's user numbers continue to grow. I don't know the data about how that growth compares to previous years, but it would seem to me that Spotify is to some extent concerned about, um, you know, the, the kind of continued rise of TikTok, um, putting aside its political difficulties. Um, and it just thinks that, you know, this is the moment for um, a different kind of experience. But, you know, it's also not that unusual sometimes for companies to announce these redesigns and then they end up being less ambitious than they originally meant to be because of a backlash. So mm. I suppose let's see in that sense. Do you think that the redesign is just an expression of Spotify's total power over listeners? I mean, do you think that they feel that nobody will leave if, even if they hate it? Um, I, I don't know about that. And, and you know, again, they're the ones with the data. So um, if they sense that it is, you know, they're worried about people leaving, but they're also worried about people using it less. It's, um, I suppose using LS is a kind of slow motion version of leaving, right? That that that's mm. what they're trying to avoid. Um so no, I think I think it's yeah, I think it's a sort of not wanting to you know, tech companies don't generally want to be seen to be standing still or to, you know, run the risk of being left behind. Um and yeah, it, it's even as the numbers have continued to grow, it has not necessarily been a brilliant few years for Spotify. Um I mentioned these six percent of job cuts, the move into podcasting in terms of, you know, their own podcasting content has been very expensive, you know, hundreds of millions, $200 million on the Joe Rogan deal alone, mm. similar sums to buy the Ringer or Gimlet, these podcast studios. And there was a deal with the Obamas as well. Wasn't the Obamas, there? exactly. And, you know, so far that's produced very little revenue. Um, the person who was overseeing that has now left the company. And I think the view is that it has not been a success. And you know, I should that... say also that that's figure that 9.6% of our listeners are listening on Spotify is much lower than the average for a mm. podcast. Um, so most most podcasts will have 26% of their listeners listening on Spotify. But even then, it's not a large number, really. No, I mean, I, but I think, I think the argument I kind of make in the piece is that, I suppose, the deal with Joe Rogan, for example, you are trying to bring people in specifically to listen to a podcast like that but for other people you're just you're also trying to keep people within spotify you know mm -hmm. these might be people who already had spotify for music but you don't want them to go elsewhere listen to a podcast so it's kind of keeping mm -hmm. ev you know keeping everything within the one app and you know there's the shift that i talk about in the piece at a certain point you hear daniel Eck and the company generally you know describe spotify as being the business of audio rather than music and it's expanded beyond you know, expanded to podcasts as part of that it's the amazonification of all yeah of all platforms right they're trying to expand and become the everything thing of whatever they are yes while at the same time you know like i said at one point there was a move to move into you know attempt to move into mm -hmm. more dedicated video streaming and i think recognition that that was probably a step too far so mm -hmm. you know within certain territory trying to be on top of all of it so do you think spotify will pull back from podcasting as well um i mean it has these studios right so i think it'll continue doing things there i'd be surprised if there were more massive investments of that kind coming up but i don't i think it will continue to produce its own content partly because having spent all that money on you know for example gimlet and the ringer um the point is the point of spending that money was that it then wouldn't have to you know it's a way to not pay royalties that the, the, the outlay is on buying those companies and i suppose to some extent on producing the content but then the revenue you know goes to the company goes to spotify Let's end by talking a little bit about some of the other ventures that Spotify has been trying or different things that they're planning to roll out, one of which is a scheme called Discovery Mode, where for a smaller cut of the royalties, a record label can arrange with Spotify to have a larger amount of promotion done on a certain song or a certain artist. Now, they've only rolled this Discovery Mode out in North America so far, but do you think that this is essentially just going to be a race to the bottom where everybody will end up collecting less royalties? I mean, first of all, there's, you know, unsurprisingly been a backlash against mm -hmm. this, whether or not it's meaningful backlash. I mean, people are sure. calling it payola, essentially. Right. And it's, and it's not the first time that Spotify has been accused of a payola-like arrangement. I mean, you know, just to clarify with discovery mode, the point is, if you as an artist strike the deal with Spotify relating to certain songs, then those songs are more likely to come up, essentially, in a playlist on 
autoplay and so on. Um, but yeah, I think it was a few years ago, I think in the late 2010s, um, certain journalists started noticing that there were artists who were appearing in Spotify's own playlists and were maybe racking up millions of plays. But these were artists who didn't really have any other kind of footprint otherwise. They, you know, they've been actually termed fake artists, not, you know, there were people making this music, but um, the theory that developed, and Spotify has never admitted this, is that, you know, certain companies were essentially specializing in making music for Spotify in exchange for a lower royalty. So mm-hmm. Spotify would, you know, this music would end up playlists. Um, you know, one of these companies, um, Filler Sound, I think it was called, at one point, something like 500, <laughs> 500 I mean, Such exactly, exactly. Um I think, you know, there were 500 million plays attributed to filler sound artists. So um, that, like I said, Spotify hasn't, has never owned up about that. So who knows what's actually going on? And that was described as payola. At least with discovery mode, one could say it's out in the open. I mean, it's not mm. out in the open in the sense that as a user, you're probably not going to be aware of it. And even if you are aware of it, you'll have no idea whether or not the song that comes up has come about through that particular arrangement. Um, but... I mean, what is depressing about it is, you know, as, as, as it's well publicized and as I say in the piece, it's not like the royalties are very high anyway. So yeah. if you're accepting even less money per stream. Um, but another way of looking at it, I suppose, is, you know, for some artists, Spotify is pure promotion, right? If you're not going to make money from Spotify anyway, mm. and really it's about people discovering your music and then maybe but coming to see a concert or paying for some merch or whatever else, then... It's you just know, marketing. It's marketing, yeah. yeah. Um, and perhaps that's the kind of trade-off that some artists are willing to make. I don't think it's good for music. Do you think Spotify is good for music? Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's hard to... This is an article about Spotify because Spotify is the biggest streaming platform and the most, you know, as a result of that, the most influential streaming platform. Um, and there are things about Spotify that are worse than other platforms you know it it does pay less than apple music and tidal although it pays more than amazon music people won't be surprised to hear um but you know i I think a lot of what i write about is relates to streaming and the kind of streaming model um there are ways in which it's good for music there are ways in which it helps people discover things there are you know one thing we haven't necessarily discussed is how popular old music is on spotify um and that's you know actually if you look at how much old music is played on spotify it's it's a difficult comparison to make but it accounts music that's a year and a half and older which at least in america is referred to as catalog music accounts for a far bigger proportion of streams than it did for sales in the kind of cd era um and you know it's not unusual for me to come across some kind of um say sort of 60s or 70s old song maybe I've heard it on uh, radio or in a mix put it through Shazam find out the name of the song or I've seen a track listing for a radio show and I put it on Spotify and I think this is some incredibly obscure thing that you know I feel very pleased with myself to have come across and I'll see that has 500,000 plays or 2 million plays and it happens again and again and again I don't I'm not sure I really understand what is behind that but you know what's clear is that music that would have been really quite obscure um when it first came out and you know, unjustly obscure, has this kind of remarkable lease of life, um, you know, half a century on. That's part of a, a wider reissue culture. But um, these songs are getting exposure through Spotify that they never would otherwise. Um, so, you know, th- that that is positive. That is good for music. In terms of the overall effect on music and what it means for the viability of making music or making music as a career, I think it's harder to argue that that's a good thing. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining me today. Thank you, Malin. You can find Daniel's piece on Spotify in the latest issue of the LRB, along with writing by Jeremy Harding, Anne Carson and LRB podcast guest Michael Wood. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne and the music is by Kieran Brunt. 